This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to with Carolyn Parant, President and CEO of Convair. Carolyn is well known around the Beltway as a passionate, results-driven tech leader. Carolyn has built high-performance teams for decades and grown organizations to achieve the highest levels of success. Prior to her current role, Carolyn was uh, the CEO of LiveSafe, a leading mobile risk intelligence solution for safety and security incidents. Uh, She was also the co-founder of Gravy Analytics and the EVP of Sales and General Manager at Dell Tech. So first, what an honor. Carolyn, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So Carolyn, let's start off with a a basic question about leadership. Can you describe your leadership style? So I would describe my leadership style as direct, enthusiastic, optimistic, and transparent. I basically share, you know, the full plan, the current status, and the good, the bad, and the ugly with my team. And uh, by my team, I, I mean, you know, every employee, intern, all the way through to my board of directors and my investors. I, I like to think of all the stakeholders in and around the organization as part of the team. And I think transparency is probably my biggest leadership style. So do you alter it? Uh, you mentioned, you know, through your entire organization, you you want to make sure that there's transparency, but there, there are some people who can absorb information differently or different situations that may alter the way that you approach things. Uh, do you change your leadership style depending upon the situation? I wouldn't say I change my leadership style, but I definitely do summarize the information and and convey it and communicate it, you know, a little bit differently based on the audience. One of the things that um, I, I do after every board meeting is I take the board of directors deck and I present it back to the company, um, including the interns and, you know, and every employee. And on the financials, I summarize that because it's, you know, pretty granular when you're, you know, talking to investors and boards of directors. But I think it's really, really important for all the employees to understand, um, you know, if you want your team to fully commit to the direction and expect them to execute, they have to really understand what's going, what's truly going on with the business. So, and then on the other side, you know, for the board of directors and the investors, I always want them to understand what's happening with the customer and the sales pipeline as we're going along. Um, And so I kind of summarize the details based on the audience. My goal is always no big surprises. You know, the teams can support and adapt to any need or opportunity or challenge if they know how we got there going along the way. And I think the same holds true for the boards and the investors. So the, the more informed they are, the better you can action on opportunities or challenges. But I do um, summarize and consolidate the information a little bit differently based on the audience. So, you know, you, you've, you've been a, a CEO for decades. Um, have you ever, you know, come a, a, along with an obstacle or something that you faced that was very difficult and, you know, you, you learned uh, a big leadership lesson from that? Yeah, when I joined, um, when I joined Dell Tech, it was a private company with 400 employees that had just been sold to private equity. And the employees had worked together, most of them for like a decade. And we needed fast growth. And that meant bringing in more talent. You know, my leadership challenge with that was how do you blend the new members and new processes to scale because we were on the road to a quick IPO while retaining and growing the existing team members who had great industry knowledge um, and deep customer relationships. So, uh, you know, it it was if we did it right, we were going to be able to within 18 months, you know, triple the revenue, quadruple the revenue, take the company public. If we did it wrong, it it could have rattled, you know, the whole plan for the business and the premise on why the private equity, you know, company came in uh, and bought it in the first place. So I took one new leader um, from the outside and one existing leader. And I actually changed the teams that they were managing, um, you know, to, you know, help them lead and collate. And I gave the two of them the freedom to come up with a standard sales model, sales methodology, customer success plan. Um, and I didn't t- dictate what it was, 
but I did require that they both had to use whatever they came up with. And at first, you know, they were very, very wary and did not like each other at all. You know, you had the one, uh, you know, they were total opposites. One was process oriented, military, structured leader, um, and he was new to the company. And the other one was, you know, very fluid, knew the industry inside and out, dynamic, you know, sales leader, kind of, you know, shoot from the hip, you know, and just make anything happen. And, um, and it was, it was a risk because we had a pretty short window in terms of, you know, scaling. So they hammered out a plan and, and managed it with a lot of great success after they went back and forth between them. And since it was their mutual decision, um, you know, they had to own it and then their teams bought into it. Um, it was risky and hard because I had to bring together two opposite people and kind of put them in a room and, and kind of help guide them, um, but not dictate exactly what I wanted them to do. And uh, they ultimately forged a bond and a plan, allowed us to grow to 1,200 employees, and we had a successful IPO. And I, you know, my job was guide them through the process, empower them, and then stand aside and let them lead and, um, and steering, you know, where we were going, but letting them own and execute the plan and their success. And that partnership and the success they drove was probably one of my proudest moments as a leader in my career. Because it's very easy to, you know, set the path and then dictate exactly how you're going to get there. But to get your teams to buy in, you really do. And sometimes it's very different personalities, very different perspectives, you know, you know, putting some guardrails on and bringing them together and allowing them to, you know, come up with it and own it on their own and, and to stand back. Um, and that's that's hard, you know, when you're a very dynamic leader. And, and I took that experience. This was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And it really transformed how I worked with teams going forward. Now you you've been around the Beltway for um, we're we're about the same age, and I know that many times when I walk into a a, a major meeting with uh, leaders, um, nobody looks like me. <laughs> I'm the only woman at the table. Um, usually, um, one of the only minorities. Um, when ha- have you faced some challenges as a woman uh, walking into a room? I mean, you've been a, you've been a leader. You've been the CEO of some pretty major companies. Well, um, you know, my, my approach and, and what like you, I mean, 30 years in the industry. Yes. First, you know, first female on the sales team, first vice president of sales in the company where there were 30. Uh, when I joined Dell Tech, I was the only woman on the executive team, um, you know, and then, you know, being CEOs, uh, you know, of companies. So, you know, my my approach to leading has always been to kind of be true to myself and not focus on the fact that I'm a woman but that I am a team member and, you know, and do a job, you know, with a job to do and, and, and deliver it and, you know, and measure the results. And um, I think, you know, I, advice I always give is if you have, I had measurable goals, you know, because I started my career in sales and it was always easy for me to be compared to my peers because the sales numbers were the scorecard, right? So I didn't necessarily have to, um, you know, have obscure results. And, you know, I remember my very first sales job, the sales manager came in. Uh, there were 55 salespeople. I was the only woman. There were you know, 20 sales managers. There were no women. And he said, um, I- I've had a formal complaint about you. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, uh, one of your peers, a gentleman, um, his name was Mark. He had just graduated from BC. He was a football player, came to me. And my manager's name was Tom. And he said, and he said, Carolyn is, you know, aggressively asking questions and pushing for proposal pricing and, you know, and changing sales processes and constantly trying to get her deals, you know, negotiated and approved. And Tom, my sales manager said, well, yes, that's, you know, that's the job. You know, she's a sales rep. So, you know, so is everybody else. And he's like, yeah, but she's a girl. Girls aren't supposed to act that way. And and he kind of chuckled when he told me, but he said, you know, Carolyn, you're doing everything right, but you need to realize that not everybody on the team is used to having a female, you know, doing this. And so I could have taken great offense to that and thrown a stink and, you know, gone to HR and everything. And what I decided was it was better to know how my peers perceive me and work to collaborate with them and win them over and within three months. I was, you know, one of the team and and it was great. And that individual ended up becoming one of my best advocates. But in the beginning, this was 30 years ago, he, he literally didn't know what to do with me. He's like, she's not supposed to, yes, salespeople are supposed to be that way, but, you know, she's not supposed to be that way because she's a girl. So, you know, I always encourage women to, in any field to, you know, get agreed upon metrics and define your success that can be tracked and to, just don't worry about the rest, you know? And so uh, when I became, you know, uh, when I came to be a, a first time CEO, uh, yeah, 60% of my executive team were women and 30% of my board members were, uh, were women. 
And, uh, you know, I kind of learned to be a, a velvet hammer, you know, strong, but not abrasive, passionate and persuasive to get things done and approved quickly, but, you know, also an empathetic leader. So it, you, you sound like you've had some great leaders that you've worked with in the past. Does anybody come to mind uh, that maybe taught you a lesson that uh, you just mentioned one, but uh, that you really admire? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I can give you two. Um, you know, my father. Uh, was a CEO, started in sales, and he was my greatest mentor. And, and he taught me that in business, you know, nothing lasts forever, good or bad. So enjoy success as it's coming and celebrate it loudly with your teams. But as a leader, you need to be thoughtful and think ahead and plan always for contingencies that you have that responsibility. And if times are tough, buckle down and grit through it. Um, and, you know, you often get too much credit when you have success and you don't get enough credit for managing through rough periods. So he always said, you know, run a good race and, and try your best and kind of keep that balance. And when COVID hit, um, you know, we had to adapt our business at LiveSafe um, as it was an on-premise safety reporting solutions for uh, employees in the offices and students on college campuses. And in three weeks time, you know, our team, you know, modified our product, launched an e-commerce platform, distributed a whole new marketing plan, you know, and website with new pricing. And within the next quarter, we onboarded a hundred plus new customers. It was like, you know, unbelievable growth for us. So instead of packing it in and what could have been crippling to our business, you know, we adapted and had great success and record growth that ultimately led, you know, to our unsolicited offer for the company and a successful exit. But I carried with me that thinking of like, when times are tough, it's when you've got to lead and, you know, and grit through it and nothing lasts, you know, forever. So, and that kind of adaptation, uh, Fred Smith, who's the CEO of FedEx was one of my board members. And he taught me that, you know, you're only as successful as your ability to adapt and change, you know, you know, constantly look at your customers, and the market and align your team and solutions to meet those needs. And I took that advice seriously and it made all the difference to the outcome of that company. And I use it daily, you know, as I lead my organization today. I'm speaking with Carolyn Perrant, president and CEO of Convair. After the break, we'll discuss the importance of investing in growth as a leader. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Carolyn Perrant, President and CEO of Conveyor. So, Carolyn, tell us about your career path. I mean, to founding company, to being a CEO. What was your first job? I mean, did you start off working at McDonald's? My, well, my very first job um, was in sales, and it was going and working at flea markets and selling for um, a company that had products that they sold at the flea market, stereo systems and speaker boxes and that kind of thing. And um, I also at the same time um, on the weekends, I would go and clean condominiums um, at Snowbird, which was a ski resort. I went to high school in Utah and I lived on the mountain. And the only job I could get was uh, going up on Saturdays and cleaning the, you know, cleaning that. So I did that on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I went to the flea markets and I sold stuff. And so that was um, in school. And then when I graduated, uh, my first job was software sales uh, for a company called Versus, and it was going to sell um, financial accounting systems and project management software to construction companies and to doctor's offices. So it's very rare somebody's career is a straight line. It doesn't sound like yours was a straight line either. What was your first management job? So my first management job was uh, a VP of sales at the very first software company that um, I went to right after I graduated from college. I graduated a semester early and I I really wanted to get out there and start selling. And so it was like a two-year track uh, of sales training. And after a year, they gra I graduated to being a full-time sales rep. And I moved up to Boston. I transferred up because there was a bigger territory. And I worked really, really hard. And I was always the first one in and the last one out. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I was constantly coming up with ideas and making suggestions on how we could improve processes and you know closing techniques and sales tools. And they had a territory, the worst territory in the country, which was in Long Island, New York, the lowest performing branch in the company's history of 20 years, and they needed a sales manager. And I was working out of our branch office in Boston, but it was also our corporate headquarters. And the head of sales said, hey, what about Carolyn? And so he called me up and said, would you like to go to Long Island, New York and be a VP of sales? I was 20 five years old. I was like, absolutely. I was thrilled beyond belief. I'm like, this is the most exciting opportunity. This is fantastic. I am on a track. I love it. What I didn't realize, of course, was nobody else wanted that job. 
right? It was the worst. They couldn't give that job away because it was the worst performing region. And it was absolutely, you know, in a geography that nobody wanted to do outside of New York. And I just embraced it. And uh, within a year, um, we turned it from the worst performing to the fastest growing. Um, I won sales manager of the year out of 15, 15 branch offices. And a year later, I was promoted to branch manager, which is like a GM with P&L responsibility for full, full cycle. And the reason that that's relevant is, you know, I, I always, my entire career, while it's been nonlinear, big companies, medium companies, startups, et cetera, I always took the hard thing, the thing that nobody else really wanted that was related to growing. So there were lots of other branch managers and, and people, sales managers, and they were like servicing existing accounts and growing a little. And I was always attracted like a moth to a flame to grow new, hard from scratch, which I think is ultimately why I became an entrepreneur and and launched companies and started where you didn't have any customers. But that was my first, um, that was my first management. And um, we called ourselves the monkey boys because I, I built my sales team and I said, you know what, we're just like a bunch of a crazy monkeys where we, you know, we, nobody expects anything of us. We can just do any idea we can, you know, we can pursue, you know, they're all going to think we're going to fail. Let's just do it. And they had never sent a single sales rep to club trip in the in the branches you know history which was a long it was like a decade and that year we sent all seven sales reps made club they all made quota and the very last rep i'll never forget was two weeks before the end of the year and he needed like three more deals and all the other sales reps because we were such a team because we're young startup like you know trying to just prove ourselves they all stopped selling in their own territories even though they knew they could have made more money at year end and they all went into his territory and helped him bring the last three deals across the line so that they all could go and that was probably one of my most profound moments as a manager and as a leader and really giving me a sense of what it's like to build a team. Because collectively, if people work together on a common objective and you take out the egos and everybody tries to help each other, there's really nothing you can't accomplish. So my advice is always take the hard thing that's new, that needs growth um, and you know that nobody else wants because it's tough. Because if you succeed at it, you're going to stand out like a star. And sure enough, a year later, I was I promoted to branch manager. I was the youngest branch manager in the company's history across, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 branches across the U.S. Everybody else was like literally 50 and I was 26 years old. And it really was a trajectory for me. So you, you, I have to ask this question. There's a difference between management and leadership. And to me, your story reflects a little bit of that difference. How do you feel about management versus leadership? The way that I think about leadership is that everybody in the company can be a leader. You know, traditionally, people think about leadership like a hierarchy, like, you know, um, you've got, you know, people, you know, and report structures and levels and that kind of thing. And nowadays, I mean, you know, I always believe that, you know, whether you're an individual contributor, you know, whatever position, you know, that you had in the company, everybody had the opportunity to lead, you know, to innovate, to contribute management to me, you know, is the not fun part of the job, right? Which is the reviews and the paperwork and the things that people typically think everyone's like, I want to be part of management. No, you want to be a leader. Everybody wants to be part of a leader. You know, usually the management stuff is, I find is more the operational stuff, which if you love customers and you love working with people and, uh, you know, then that's leadership to me. So that's kind of how I view the difference. You know, I, I never wanted to be a manager. I always wanted to be a leader and be part of a team. And, and I think, you know, to me, leader, everybody can be a leader. And it just got so much more of a positive connotation. And yes, management is critically important. You have to have strong principles. You have to have operational guidelines. You have to have all the things that you know, can enable your employees, you know, to succeed. But leadership is really where, you know, that's where the conviction and the passion and the, and the teamwork all comes into play. There's a famous quote uh, by the legendary management consultant, um, Peter Drucker, and it's the culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I personally don't think that he thought that strategy wasn't unimportant, but rather a powerful and empowering culture was a sure route to organizational success. Do you agree with that thought? And, and what is the relationship between leadership and culture? So to me, I think, um, Culture is something that can only be established by the collective. You can't be, you have, you can have a tone at the top and you can be an executive and you can say, you know, these are the values and that these are the things that are important. But if the group of the team 
hasn't doesn't believe in that it's not in their fiber and they can't align to it and they don't you know they don't commit to it then all it is is words on a page you know words on a wall you know whatever and i think culture's really driven as um as a result of the you know the people and to me leadership is everyone feeling empowered and contributing and ownership in what they're doing like i said you don't to be a leader you don't you can be an individual contributor it's not about you having direct reports or a span of control or a certain percentage of whatever it's about you doing your very best and aligning around where the company is going everybody in the boat rowing in unison all striving to achieve the same thing so i think that's the difference you know culture to me if everybody's a leader and the strategy is good like everybody knows what are we trying to accomplish what do we stand for? What are our goals? What's my responsibility and my you know leadership role in achieving all those goals? Then culture is kind of the, what the collective makes of it. You know, it's um, and so and I think I think both are really important. But if people don't feel, you, you know, I, I get Drucker's comment, but you have to set where you're going and and ways to get there. But people, and that's your strategy. But everyone has to understand what their leadership role is and their contribution is and what they collectively want to be a part of and how they want to work together. And that's where I think culture, um, you know, comes, comes together. I, I don't think you can just mandate, this is the kind of culture we're going to have. It has to be a body of people believing and supporting and aligning and not just words on a page. You, you seem to really have a very strong uh, situational and self-awareness um, how do you continue to grow as a leader? Do you invest in ways to help develop new skills? Uh, yes. So I, I think to grow yourself as a leader, you, you constantly need to be learning. And, you know, just like technology changes, you know, so fast, so do organizational dynamics, you know, customer needs, purchasing and decisioning processes, recruiting, you know, look at the past two years, so much has changed. So I read a lot, you know, um, I, I, my, my favorite book is Lincoln's uh, Laws on Leader. Um, you know, that, that one's been around since Lincoln. And, um, you know, and I also read recent studies on like what employees expect from their companies in a, you know, in a COVID environment. So I'm an English major, so I read a ton. I also get a lot of value from networking with my peers in professional organizations um, like NVTC. You know, I, I really think there's just huge value in hearing what your peers are doing and the, and the ways in a trusted environment that they're growing and dealing with their challenges. Um, I like having an affiliation with an academic organization because I think that's helpful to how you think. Um, I'm on um, Mason's uh, Innovation Council. And then probably the best um, training I had was I was a judge for Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. So for three years, I literally interviewed CEOs, reviewed their applications and their businesses and, and learned how they were successful and, and, and how they ran their businesses and faced their challenges and how they built their businesses. And I was a judge. But I have to tell you, I learned so much from that experience, from all these remarkable people. So I, I think, you know, read, stay current, have a good network. Um, and then, um, and then I, you know, if you want, if you want brutal transparency, uh, have kids because, you know, they are a mirror and they are brutally honest about your strengths and your weaknesses. And they're, you know, they are no politics and they are completely unfiltered. Um, and that will definitely help you, uh, help you grow and figure out where you need to work and improve yourself. I'm speaking with Carolyn Perrant, president and CEO of Conveyor. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through these challenging times. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on the Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. And today we're talking with Karen, Carolyn Perrant, President and CEO of Conveyor. Now, Carolyn, there are so many articles coming out these days about empathetic leadership. People are tired. Um, you know, the hits just keep on coming. There's, you know, there's talk about, you know, the great resignation. How do you lead with empathy? It's interesting. Um, you know, empathetic leadership seems to be, you know, something that's current, you know, that's come out over the past couple of years. And I, I think that for some people that just comes very naturally. I, you know, I, I always want to know as much about the people that I work with, about my customers, about my investors, you know, what do they do when they're not working? What are their hobbies? Where's their family? What's their story? You know, what's their backdrop? You know, I, you know, what do they like? What do they not like? And, and I think the more we learn about people, 
um, the more you can understand their behaviors and their reactions and, and the more you can get, you know, them, you know, speak to them, communicate with them and put them in situations within work that they're going to thrive and, you know, and succeed. And I think empathy comes from understanding. And I think if you have a natural curiosity and I happen to love be with people, you know, I was vaccinated with a phonograph needle is what my grandmother used to say. You know, I love to talk and I love to listen and I love to be with people. And I, I feed off that energy of being with other people and learning about them. And I think if you if you understand people and where they come from and their backgrounds and just about them, then you do become more empathetic. And one nice thing that COVID brought is as we were all Zooming from home, you got to peek into people's houses and their kids and their pets and, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and what they like to do. And so to me, um, that helps you. So when somebody's struggling at work or when you need to get somebody to go an extra mile or where you're trying to do an organization and bring different types of people together to accomplish an, either a challenge or an opportunity, I think, you know, there is empathy there. And, and I've definitely been the kind of leader that was much more about trying to understand and trying to resolve than just, you know, being distant. And I, and I think I get that because I came from a family where my, you know, my mother and father were executives and we moved around the country and I had to meet a lot of different people and go to a lot of different schools. And, and uh, I've got an incredibly supportive, you know, empathetic husband. I picked a partner who, you know, we've been married 30 years who listened and supported. And so I've been surrounded by empathetic people, fortunately, my friends, my family. And I think you kind of learn some of those skills early on. These days, as we mentioned earlier, the hits keep on coming. And earlier in the first segment, you brought up the importance of being authentic. What leaderships do you think are really needed during these stressful times like we are experiencing today? Do you think being authentic, you know, showing that empathy, taking the time to understand, and, and how do you display that? Well, I think you have to appreciate where people are coming from. So my background was in sales, and I always used to try and sit myself in the customer's shoes and try and really understand from their point of view what were they trying to accomplish? What were they trying to do? What were the challenges and pressures they were in? Um, and I would do the same thing for my competition. Think about if I was in their shoes, how would they be positioning against us? What would they be doing? I think with your employees, you need to do the same thing. When when COVID hit, first, first thing was, are all our employees safe? And how can we be supportive? And we learned things, right? Like some of our employees had elderly parents that lived with them and they were very concerned. I, a lot, number of our employees had young children under three and they were like, how am I going to watch? I can't send them to daycare. How am I going to watch and do my work? And so, you know, I did things like, um, you know, we hired babysitting services. Um, I did Zoom calls where, um, you know, we would entertain for 30 minutes, kids, the, the, the young kids um, of you know, the parents so they could get a little bit of a break, um, allowing people to completely change their work work schedules, take time off, pool resources so people could get paid, you know, paid leave because they literally were completely stressed. So um, I, I think that is you have to figure out and sit in the seat of your employees and your workforce and try and figure out what they need, because um, a lot of times they might not be telling you. Right. They don't either they don't want to bring it forward or they are concerned it might make them look bad. And so, so I think that's the kind of leadership you need to show is you know, empathizing, thinking, suggesting, leaning in as much as you can to try and help navigate through challenging times. And what you get in return when you show those kindnesses um, is just incredible loyalty. People that will kill for you and work for you, you know, so much. I mean, it, it always goes, you always get so much more than you give. But if you just spend the time to try and understand and support, um, I don't think enough people um, do that. And I think that's that's the challenge. And uh, your comment on the great resignation is, is valid. I don't think people are resigning. I think people are shifting around. I think everybody through COVID did a lot of internalizing. And, and this is, you know, mental health, like what's going to make me happy? Where do I want to live? How do I want to spend my time? Do I want to be doing a two hour commute? Do I want to be doing work that maybe is not, you know, my passion. And I think a lot of people self-reflected and then decided, you know, I need to make a change. And to me, I'm the always look at everything optimistically. That's a positive out of COVID in the sense that people are becoming more self-aware. Hopefully they're landing in places where they're going to be happier. And hopefully some of the people that are coming into our organization where they left others are coming because this is a better fit, you know, for them. And isn't that what we all want? Everybody to have fun, rewarding, purposeful work um, and a great balance, you know, with work at home. And as a society, if we can achieve that, having come through something as terrible as COVID, you know, that's a really wonderful thing. And I think leaders have to lead and let 
the customers know that the company's stable and the employees know that they are supported um, or it's not going to succeed. And probably the biggest thing that uh, you, when you mentioned stressful times is mental health. So, you know, three years ago, nobody took a mental health day. Nobody got to raise their hand comfortably and saying, hey, I'm really stressed or I'm not coping or I need to take some time or I need to sleep or, you know, I need to tap out for whatever reason, you know, and companies, I think, are awakening to that and putting it out there in the forefront and being much more supportive of that. And it's not taboo for somebody to raise their hand. They're not going to be penalized because they, you know, they need something for their mental health. And I think that's a really wonderful, important transition that corporations are finally taking into consideration. Um, You know, back in my day, and I'm sure for you, um, you couldn't, you didn't ever say you were going to take a day off because your child was sick. I mean, you just, you know, just couldn't. I mean, it was not, you know, because it was considered a, a bad thing 30 years ago. You know, in the past 10 years, everybody understands, you know, if you've got to stay home with a sick kid. It was almost unimaginable that five years ago, somebody would raise their hand and say, I- I'm very stressed. I need to take some time off for my mental health. Now I think it's becoming, you know, not just more commonplace, but encouraged so that people can be healthy holistically into everything they do. And I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, some of the articles coming out have recently noted that uh, women were impacted the most um, with the change in the work and the dynamic uh, during the pandemic. I'd like to talk about women leadership for a minute. Um, You've been a leader in technology for over decades. Women are still drastically underrepresented in leadership in technology companies. And actually over the last two years, I think has they've been taking a further step back with um, especially our mid, mid-level leadership and, and early, early career uh, leaders, women that had kids at home. Uh, what do you think about that? And what do you think we can do about this? It's a, it's a tough one. Um, I, I'm encouraged by the number of women going into business and engineering in the universities. You know, my daughter graduated from Virginia Tech. She's an engineer. She now works at Apple. Um, I know a ton. I have a tribe of professional women um, that are my, you know, my sole support. And they're all presidents and executives in tech companies. And we, we support each other. But I think the hardest thing um, is the working moms, the people like you think about a single mother. I think there is no more underrepresented um, individual in terms of professional advancement and work than a single mom in terms of trying to navigate a job and, and childcare. And I think we all have to do our part in terms of being supportive to these women who are the providers or, you know, if, if they're, if they have a partner, you know, contributors, you know, financially, but who also have children, you know, particularly young children and school age children, where somebody has got to be there when they get off the bus at, you know, at three o'clock or, or somebody has got to be there at five to, you know, to pick up from daycare. I think we need to um, fund and support and make more access to daycares and, um, and to childcare. I think we need to, which companies are being much more flexible about remote work, and, uh, and the ability to, you know, to balance and job share. And, um, and I also think as leaders, we need to understand that they have a huge value in working. And even if it's part-time consulting, you know, don't cut them completely out. You know, when one of the challenges I think with COVID is the people that who's going to get promoted, who's going to get management when you're not together, when you don't get that personal interaction, it's harder to understand, you know, the dynamics from a a leadership perspective. And I I always think, you know, with women, don't let them completely step out because the rules are so hard and fast, right? Try and come up with, can they work a day a week, two days a week? Can we job share? You know, are there ways to still keep them engaged? So when their circumstances change for whatever reason, and they want to come back, you know, full-time or or to the next level that they want to contribute, that it's not such a stark, hard path back. So many people step out and then after a few years, they're like, I could never get back in the game. Everything has changed so much. And and I don't want to see that happen. So I think we can be more flexible in making work, consulting, part-time, job sharing, and at the same time, being supportive with, you know, with daycare and, and work from home. It's a huge component of the workforce. And naturally, when COVID hit, of course, you see a big step back where a big majority of the people stepping out of the workforce were the working, the working mothers. And that's just really, we have to do everything we can not to completely disconnect them from, you know, the business world and to welcome them and, and have a tether and find a way forward with whatever level they can contribute, because there is a major value in that. And look, there is a huge 
you know, challenge with tech talent, right? There are way more jobs in the tech industry than we have qualified people to fill them. So to not be flexible and try and keep that segment of the workforce engaged, I think is a huge mistake. So anything we can do to support them, we should. It's good totally, for everybody. I totally agree with all that, but there's also another side to it. There's a perception issue. Uh, now, maybe this was, you know, over 20 years ago, but I can remember sitting at a dinner and having a man turn around to me um, with a room full of men. Many of them, I have four children, and many of them had four children too, and kept on asking me how in the world I did it. And I thought, you know, he wasn't asking the man next to me. <laughs> he, he was only asking me. <laughs> and I'm like, my husband, I, I luckily, like you, chose a, a mate well. And uh, when we had our fourth child, he, he it, it's an oxymoron because nobody with four kids ever stays home, but he focused more on the family than he did. He, 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 he was, uh, you know, at home. And, um, you know, how do we change that perception so that women who have kids all of a sudden aren't involuntarily put on the mommy track? Yeah, I think it depends on the industry. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the, the accounting firms, law firms, you know, places where, uh, you know, in the medical community, doctors, where it's the number of hours, the number of billable hours, the, you know, butts and seats, you know, you know, do you have the stamina and do you have the hours? Um, I think it's harder. Um, I think the tech industry, it's actually easier because I do think there are a number of women that you can point to. I, I also think that uh, this generation, I can speak to just watching my son is an engineer, uh, you know, and he works for, uh, you know, for Lockheed and, and my daughter. And, and you know, it's, it, you know, I always say if you can see it, you can be it. So there are more kids that are growing up and now entering into the workforce that watched their mothers go to work that watched, you know, two parents, you know, who both had jobs, who, you know, who shared and did. And I think they have an appreciation for how it can be done and can be successfully done. And I, I also think that, you know, this workforce is very empowered. I mean, they are, they are coming into the market with, you know, very defined views on how they want to contribute, how they want to structure their lives, culturally, the kind of people that they want to work with, the kind of projects they want to work with. And so I, I'm very hopeful that um, that that will that will transform. And I also think, to your point, if that was 20 years ago, um, that a lot of the senior managers or maybe they came up 20 years ago and that was, you know, and that was 40 years ago, they'd been in the industry and they didn't see a lot of women in the workforce and they didn't, you know, have that. Well, you know, I, I think the numbers are changing and have changed with you, with me, with, you know, with this generation. So I think each generation, you're getting more exposure to, you know, um, women in the workforce, working moms and that type of thing. And I, 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 but like I said, I think for people, you know, on that partner track, you know, where it is or billable hour track, I think it is it is harder. And I think, you know, the women just have to figure out how they own it, the conversation. They don't let the mommy track happen to them. They control the dialogue, their value, their contribution. They pr self-promote themselves and their accomplishments. And they lean into making sure that they take credit for the work that they've done. And that, you know, and that they have very defined metrics that can be measured against that they, you know, that are proof points on their contribution. So they can't be overlooked. And I think like anything, you know, women, women have to probably work harder to making sure that they, that doesn't happen to them. But I do think it's much better than it was a, a while ago. At least that's my hope. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black. And today we've been talking with Carolyn Perrant. President and CEO of Conveyor. Next, we'll find out what Carolyn's advice is to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Carolyn Perrant, President and CEO of Conveyor. Now, first, Carolyn, you know, we've been talking about a lot of subjects, but one thing we haven't talked about is your current role in your current company. Tell us a little bit about what you do and what Conveyor does. Sure. Thank you. I mean, um, so Conveyor, um, I'm the CEO, president and CEO of Conveyor. And Conveyor is a company that is disrupting product instructions and self-service. Um, I was home uh, during COVID and you couldn't go out. You couldn't, uh, people couldn't come into your home. And so we were trying to do things. We bought a farm and we were trying to do things a lot ourselves, which was fix things, work with appliances, figure out how things, you know, how things operated. And I was constantly looking and searching on the web for instruction manuals and for um, directions and that type of thing. And it was a horribly frustrating experience. I either Googled it and it came up and I couldn't find the product name and the 
product model and I didn't know that, or I was hunting through YouTube videos, watching lots of other people say how they fixed a dishwasher or how they, you know, uh, did something with, you know, their, you know, their home, uh, you know, thermostat system. And it was just really frustrating. I'm like, this is crazy. There should be a simple, you know, way where there's a QR code on the side of my machine where I can just, you know, hold up my phone, scan the QR code like I do in the restaurants, uh, you know, for the menus during COVID and be able to ask it a question and get an answer and have it know what product I have in my house and be able to, you know, interact with it and ask it a question and, you know, fix my problem and move on. And, um, and there wasn't anything. It was ridiculous. Everything was PDFs. You couldn't search anything. It was just really hard and convoluted. I'm like, I felt like it was like the 1950s. Everything else was easy. I could, you know, I could pick what movie I wanted to watch on Netflix. I could order anything off of Amazon. I could get Uber Eats to deliver, you know, food and groceries, but I couldn't, you know, I'm searching through paper manuals, you know, trying to figure out how to get my appliances and my stuff in my house to work. So Conveyor was really born out of the desire to make it really easy where you can, literally hold up your phone to a QR code that's on, you know, on anything, your appliance or your car or your lawnmower and get the instructions, not in a static PDF, but in a dynamic, you know, mobile web app so that you can ask the questions on how do I do this and quickly get the answer. And then for the manufacturers, the people that are making the appliances to be able to, or the, the products to be able to see what are people asking for and what are they searching on and how can we improve that and give them information and, uh, and make their life easier. So we really connect consumers and field service technicians around product instructions with a dynamic, organic experience um, that allows them to get their answer and move on with their life and allows manufacturers to understand more from a product perspective and a customer service perspective, how their um, consumers are working with their products. And so that's, uh, and I came to Conveyor uh, through uh, the chairman who I had, uh, he was an investor from a venture capitalist like 20 years ago in one of my companies. And he sat on this one and I was describing to him how frustrated I was over COVID. And he said, I have a software tech company that you could run and take to the next level. And so I looked at it and I'm like, I appreciate this problem. And so I took the job and we closed a round of funding for my previous investors at LiveSafe and away we go. Wow. Sounds like something I could use. <laughs> I, everybody's got some broken, somebody, anybody, like I was just trying to assemble something. I was just trying to get answers to something. Nobody wants to hunt and peck around. It's very frustrating. It really is. You know, we met networking. We met through the Northern Virginia Technology Council. Um, do you think it's important? You had mentioned networking and I, I truly believe somewhat of a big factor of your um your 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 net worth in your career is is really a result of your your network. Um, you know how big is your network and growing your network? Do you believe that is true? And 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 how do you invest in networking? And where do you network? Well, I believe it's very true, and I don't like to think of it as investing. I like to think of it more organic. I love being with people. NVTC has been incredibly valuable to me. Bobby Kilberg and her leadership, um, the people that you meet, the CEOs, it's been phenomenal. And like I mentioned, you know, from that, uh, you know, it led into the same people from NVTC that I interacted with were tied in with, you know, with Mason and, uh, and you know, and my involvement there. And I, all of my closest best friends happened to women that I either worked with or partnered with that became lifelong friends. So I think your network evolves from the people that you meet, whether they be customers, teammates, you know, partners, and, you know, and it, it should become very organic and natural. So I don't sit down and be like, I need to network and let me spend an hour a week on LinkedIn, or I'm not that organized, or let me, you know, look at my calendar, make sure I'm at these 10 events. I think you start to meet and work with people and things naturally evolve. Um, I just did a um, night swan, which is a, the first female uh, founded female led SPAC um, in wall street's history. And Teresa Carlson, uh, you know, from Amazon and Microsoft is, uh, and Splunk uh, is the chairman and Brandy Daly, uh, you know, who's a leader um, in government contracting world. She was a CEO of her own company and, um, uh, Ann Altman, who was the president of IBM Federal, all these women are involved in this SPAC. And that came because I networked with them through various NVTC things and we developed relationships and we partnered in different things. And so it kind of evolves, right? And um, and so I think to me, networking should feel very authentic and organic as opposed to like a job. It's like you go where the people are that are in your community and you help them when they ask and you support the committees and you contribute any way you can. And it comes back in tenfold. 
So that's how I view networking. And, and like I said, my tribe of eight women that are my my truest, deepest friends um, all came through my my work experience. They weren't in college. They weren't in high school. They weren't people I grew up with. They were all people that I formed deep bonds with, you know, over, um, you know, over the years in terms of people that I worked worked in or around. And they are my network. For the listeners out there, can you explain what a SPAC is? Sure. Um, it's a special uh, uh, purpose acquisition um, contract. And what that is, is the ability to take a company public um, into the public market where you raise money before um, you have the actual company. So the premise for ours, Night Swan, is that we have uh, female executives that really understand cloud uh, cloud computing and security and uh, and data businesses. And they have come together, went out to investors and said, we think we can help accelerate a business um, and take it public. And so you raise, raise capital on that front and then you go find the business and you take it public and then you help it ultimately grow. So do you think leaders need to give back? Like that's mentoring, right? Um, you know, it, there, there's a financial motive there too, but do you think, uh, you know, leaders need to give back and, and um, take time to, to do things like that? I mean, after they've had the love of success, all the women you've named, I know, and have decades of experience and been very successful, uh, have had very successful careers. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, well, yeah, I'm humbled. I was humbled when they asked me and I'm delighted to partner with them in any way. And, um, and you know, I think it is in terms of mentoring, people ask all the time, will you be my mentor, you know, to different people? And they always say, well, what are you looking to get? And a lot of times people don't know. They're like, I just want you to be my mentor. And it's like, yeah, no, you know, that's kind of like, I just want to go out on a date. Like, well, why? Like, well, you know, why are you interested in me? Why do you think we'd have compatibility? What, you know, so to me, I think mentoring needs to be very, um, Organic in the sense that if, um, and I remember Linda Rabbit from Rand said, you know, just do what you do, contribute, give back, help as many people as you can. And organically, this was about how to get women on boards. Someone that you're working with on some committee or on something else will get to know you, you know, without the, any, you know, intention and then say, hey, I know somebody who might be good on a board, as opposed to promoting yourself to try and be like, hey, I'm looking for a board position. And I think that's very true about mentors and giving back. I think every professional wants to help. I just think you have to make sure you align what the person's needs are with your ability to, you know, can you successfully, you know, support that. So I mentor three women, um, uh, you know, at various ages, one who's 23, one who's 30 and one who's 40. And they all have various different needs. But when they reached out to me, I thought, I, yes, you know, some, some of my background, hopefully I can help you. And if it, you know, I think that's, you know, the thing, it needs to be authentic. It needs to be aligned. And um, I do, I, I live and die by the motto that if you can see it, you can be it. So I think women need to be in front of younger girls, high school, elementary school, middle school, sharing what their careers were, how they got there, what their struggles were, you know, and the more young girls can see these women and understand, I think it opens up their eyes to what's possible for them. Like, I'll give you an example. I mean, my daughter, Elizabeth, it would never occur to her in a minute that she couldn't, that there couldn't be a female president of the United States, that there couldn't be a female CEO of a Fortune 500 company, that she couldn't ultimately, you know, run, you know, a Fortune 500 company. It wouldn't even occur to her. Whereas when I was younger, I was like, oh, you know, if someday there could ever be, you know, somebody that breaks that glass ceiling. And I think that's a beautiful thing that, you know, that, that, that these generations of women now are see themselves as limitless, which is wonderful, because I do think that in order for some of these opportunities to really materialize, they have to have that mindset. Carolyn, your career and your success has truly been inspirational. Any pearls of wisdom you might have for that next generation, especially those young girls out there that may not have the, had the chance to, to see it so that they could believe it for themselves? Oh, th thank you. That's uh, very kind of you. Um, it, I would say this, everyone is wrapped around when they think about tech, they think about coders and they think you have to be strong in math and you have to have a computer science degree and you have to be a programmer, you know, or developer, engineer, right? And in order to be in tech and that is completely and totally broken. Two-year-olds are in tech. They're using iPads. This, you know, people, these kids were born with technology in their hands. Everyone is in tech. 
And there are sales positions, marketing positions, customer success positions. There's all kinds of roles um, that you can contribute in if you don't happen to be strong in math and you're not a coder. So I was terrible in math. You know, I was an English major, as was my father, who was a CEO. And I, you know, I, I am always concerned that you get these young girls and they get tracked. Either they learn math differently or they don't see themselves strong or they or unintentionally the schools track them into into writing in English and literature. And they track the boys into science and into math. And then lo and behold, they get to high school and it's like, well, where are you going to apply to college and what are you going to do? And they think, well, I could never go. I could never go into technology. I could never go into tech. And nothing could be further from the truth. So um, I, I really want to, uh, if we could break any barrier for young girls, it is just because if you are strong in math and science, fantastic and wonderful, and you want to be a coder, great. But if that's not your strength, that does absolutely not mean that you cannot be a wildly successful uh, person in a, you know, in a tech industry, if that's what interests you. And I would argue now every company, every company in the world is a tech company because of our reliance on technology universally. And um, it just seems to me that a lot of these young girls get stymied into thinking uh, they're biased against, you know, what their skills and what their contribution can be. And I think that could forge them off of a, you know, a different path. And um, I would tell them, you know, the world is your oyster. Don't let anybody prescribe for you what you can and can't do and what could be a fit and what could not be a fit in the tech sector. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Carolyn Perrant. Carolyn, I really want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. Thank you so much, Eileen. It's been an honor and a privilege. I'm, I'm very humbled and grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you today. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. e-commerce merchants. Does consistent monthly growth while hitting ROI goals sound good? Here at AdRoll, our customers constantly let us know it feels good. AdRoll helps you attract new customers and bring shoppers back to finish the sale. Integrate your e-commerce store with AdRoll and manage display, social media, and native advertising all in one place. Sounds good, right? See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today. You're finally at that hot new spot, the one your friends keep raving about, sitting across from your date. It's going... Another round? Really well. And that dish you've been dying to try, oh, it's headed your way. You can smell it, hear it sizzling fresh off that skillet as it comes closer, closer, and served. Go ahead, enjoy. After your phone sneaks a bite first. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express, don't live life without it.